Okay, so welcome to the latest episode of the Performance Podcast. Very lucky to be joined by a very, very handy driver, especially around the Nürburgring and the Nordschleife. So probably the hardest track in Adam Christodoulou. Welcome. Thank you. How's it going? Yeah, good. Good. Uh, I thought you were going to say welcome. The driver with possibly the hardest surname to pronounce. That's what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know there's been a few people that have struggled with that in the past. <laughs> you must love it though, it just makes journalists' life hard trying to come up with a witty headline. Well, yeah, but, but also it's, it's one of those, and I remember, uh, so, who was it? Someone said it to me years ago, okay, it's probably the surname that not many people can pronounce correctly, but everyone will always remember it, and so, uh, so of course, I've tried to use that to whatever advantage uh, it may have yeah, come with at some point. That's, that's probably a, a very fair point. <laughs> it's... Uh, like you say, it's memorable because people struggle to pronounce it. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, so just back from the Norse life then and the latest latest bit of testing. Uh, so I guess a, a good place to probably kick off would be you're racing it probably the toughest track in GT3 cars, which people kind of say looks like a road car. Surely it can't be that hard to drive. From a, from a driver's perspective then, now, how how do you find it physically? Well, the let's well let's start off with the track. Obviously, uh, the the Nurburgring twenty five kilometers um, is the best description. Um, again, I saw this somewhere else. It was described as a uh, uh, a tarmac of ribbon or a ribbon of tarmac. I can't remember which yeah. way it was described, but e- either way, I thought that sort of like in a nutshell was a, a great description for it. It's one of the best circuits in the world, um, also known as the Green Hill. And to be honest, it doesn't really matter what car you're in, it's going to be a challenge around there, especially pushing whatever you're in to the limit. Regarding the GT3 cars, um, they have become more and more user-friendly over the years as there's been a lot more customer racing where gentlemen drivers or successful businessmen have raced in uh, or wanted to get involved in motorsport and basically the closer you can get your gentleman driver or less experienced driver to a pro pace then in pro-am racing that's the bigger the advantage and so um, with Mercedes AMG we've done a lot of work with this we saw it with the Mercedes SLS days and it's also been brought over to the Mercedes AMG GT3 and basically uh the more confidence we can give the the driver, generally, the faster they go. And uh, but it's not just Mercedes that have done that; it's all the brands now. They've made them, uh, I suppose, more user friendly, and and that's why it is extremely competitive. It's got to be the largest uh, category in the world. You can race a GT three car in in the UK, in Europe, in America, Brazil. Um, I race it. I race it in China, and uh, we, they also race in Australia. So. And this category has, I don't know, multiple brands, like maybe 15 brands that uh, you can choose whichever one you want to, to go with and uh, you can basically compete anywhere in the world with it. So uh, it's, it's a category that has grown more and more over the years and actually now the GT4 category is growing equally as fast, if, if not maybe even quicker just because it's a bit more affordable now. Yeah, you look at... Looked at the first race of European GT4 the other week, and the grid for that's enormous. And it, and it's brilliant that it is like that. In the end, uh, I suppose the more cars and 
within within the races we have different categories so in gt world challenge for example we got the pro category where you basically try and uh, get your best three drivers together um and then there's the silver lineups for the young drivers that are coming up trying to uh, make a career for themselves and so uh, you end up with three silver drivers and then you've got the pro-am category where you'll have uh, two let's say gentlemen drivers uh, with a pro that's got to teach them and try and build them up as uh, as best as they can to make them perform as, as good as possible and then you've got the the am category where you end up with uh, three gentlemen drivers let's say and and um uh, they're, they're sharing the budget let's say and and they're going racing and they get to race these incredible vehicles uh, against some of the best drivers in the world yeah i mean I, you know you touch on there that the, the gt3 cars have become kind of a bit a bit easier to drive a bit more approachable for the the gentleman drivers and, and the am drivers saying that like not taking anything away from it because it doesn't matter what you're in once you're pushing it yeah. at that 99 100% limit it doesn't matter what you're in to get the maximum out of it you've, you've got to be at another level okay we've got uh, the ABS which stops us locking up and we've got the traction control but it doesn't stop you from making mistakes because you've still got to push it to its absolute limit um, and it's how good you can basically dance at that limit for which which uh, puts you above the rest um, GT2 or GTE, sorry, GTE, um, doesn't have ABS, but still maybe that's why there's, I suppose, well, maybe that's why there's a smaller grid because it's a little bit harder to drive. And so, um, okay, and price also comes in, it's a bit more expensive. But uh, at the end, for a lot of GT3 drivers, we rely on um, whether it's gentleman drivers or businessmen to, to go racing with and and that's how a lot of us earn a living and go racing ourselves uh, i've i've raced with a lot of uh, mercedes amg's customers uh, over the well i joined them in 2016 i've been with them since and uh, even before that i was racing with uh, with a lot of their customers and and that's how i've managed to, to keep the ball rolling and to, to continue racing yeah i mean if you look back historically that's always been been a big part of the sport and actually you look at it realistically there's a lot of a lot of comments at the minute in terms of the F1 and the number of drivers paying. All right, the, the amount might have got slightly ridiculous, but that's always been the way of motorsport. It's yep. always been, you know, the very origins being the very wealthy businessman going and buying a blow Bentley and racing it around Brooklands. You, you can't get away from that. I, you know, you, you touched on a good point there that it doesn't matter how easy the car is to drive. Like there's there's always going to be an element of getting the most out of it from a a performance side and lap time especially in terms of the the mental side of it but i think what what a lot of people struggle to understand is even in that situation with the gt3 cars where you know like say you've got abs you've got traction control the cars more approachable for people to drive it's still very physically demanding physically hostile there's still a, a lot of forces going on the body oh yeah for sure like in braking zones we're we're pulling maybe two and a half uh g which Okay, compared to the F1 boys, that's half, but still, um, I suppose when you put it in perspective, like uh, during a braking zone, if you're pulling two and a half Gs, let's say, I don't know, the average person's head weighs eight, nine kilos, plus a helmet, there's an extra kilo and a half, so 10 kilos times two and a half, that's 25 kilos on your neck. I don't know many people 
but when that's explained to them, maybe you know better. <laughs> I don't know how much your head weighs, but like, not many people um, realize the forces that go through the body whilst whilst racing. And it's not just that. Like a lot of the stuff I do, basically at the moment, the shortest race I'm going to do this year is going to be four hours. Um, and with the longest being 24 hours. So during the 24 hours, um, we can be in the car for up to three hours in one go. So you've got to make sure that you stay hydrated. We've got all the drink system and everything in the car. Um, and we'll pit maybe every hour to hour and 10 minutes, depending on how uh, fuel efficient uh, the stint's been with safety cars, etc. Um, but yeah, we can be in the car for up to three hours. And during that, we'll lose a few kilos of, of fluid doesn't matter how much you drink just trying to continue to rehydrate isn't always easy no 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 it's, no exactly especially like you say when you're in a car but you know if you said to most people i want you to go and do a, a three-hour drive in a car on the road they would consider that to be a long drive and then yep. get into the end of it and go and you know what, actually i'm kind of pretty tired mm. and I'm, I'm pretty mentally drained and you've but got air conditioning and a radio <laughs> and uh, uncomfortable seats not i'm not saying our seats aren't comfortable in fact the race seat is probably more comfortable than a, than a road car seat as uh, basically uh, the seat is moulded to the biggest driver and me being the smallest driver uh, you end up with a, I end up with basically a booster seat in the car which is moulded to my body so and you've so, basically got an armchair in the car then well yeah like uh, like the guys obviously uh, laugh about it but basically I've got my own uh, maxi cozy which is uh, <laughs> the German equivalent of a, of a, a baby booster seat which Brilliant. goes in the car and uh, and, it, and it's moulded to my body so basically it hugs me and holds me secure in there because that's the other thing that you don't want to be moving in a, in a car either if you're rocking from side to side then without realising you're bracing yourself with your with your arms and your shoulders and, and your core is going to end up fatiguing more so the, the more secure and snug we're in there like even though we've got the the five point harness, uh, if your seat isn't correct as a driver, you definitely feel it, and and that's caught me out in the past. Oh, I've, yeah, I've seen it umpteen times where you've had drivers who've got seats that don't fit properly, or the seat's a bit too big. You come out and your back is covered in bruises, or you've got you know bruised shoulders where you've got the belts sort of moving about a bit too much. Yeah, probably the most the most extreme example of it that I've. It's probably on videos if you go and look at the uh is it the two seater f1 car around abu dhabi yes yeah i've seen this and <laughs> and the poor passenger in the back obviously so, someone hasn't quite uh buckled them in as securely as they yep. should have been i don't know whether that was the passenger that took that decision to loosen the belts a little bit or not but uh yeah the, the poor person obviously the, the driver hits the brakes and they almost headbutt the driver in front as they uh yeah. They go flying then, forward in, until the, the belts. And then proceed yeah. to get thrown around for the rest of the lap as well. Because they hey, for experience, it'll be brilliant, but uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty certain that uh, they felt it the next day. Yeah, I can, I can guarantee that. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's the other thing, isn't it? That, that also highlights some of the forces. And you know, if, you, if you go out in a road car, most people go out in a road car and somebody used to hit the brakes hard, they'd think that was, was fairly physical, fairly brutal. But that's nothing compared to the forces that you get every time you hit the brakes in a race car and when you then throw in having to cope with all of the bumps the vibrations undulations and, and elevation especially somewhere like the Nürburgring you start to throw all of that and you go right okay I want the body to be able to cope with that and cope with the weight of the steering cope with the weight of the brakes 
it's a lot to ask, especially like you say, when you're, you're potentially in the car for three hours at a time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, as you just said, like even going back to a road car, um, I've got two Renault Clios, which I use for, for training. I've got dual control in them. And of course, I always go out and just do a few steady laps. And then basically I set a bit of a, a base time for, for them to chase. And I've had a handful of customers like during the lap turn around to me whilst I'm driving around going, I'm not going to be able to do this. And it's like, well, look, we've got, we've got the day to work on it. But of course, in their head, they're half, we're halfway down the straight. And this is a Renault Clio. Like we're halfway down the straight at Silverstone doing, I don't know, 115 mile an hour, 120 mile an hour, which isn't fast compared to some of the cars that, uh, that we're in. But of course, in theory, the slower you're going, the later I'm going to be able to, to break, uh, assuming that I've got the, the grip to go with it. And so, uh, of course, you hit the brakes the first time, and again, you just see them like you see them until the belt braces and and stops them going any further forward, and they're hanging on onto the uh, the old uh, handrail that you get in the in the top. Now, of the... You're kind of making out here that you take it quite easy in the Clio. I've seen I've seen the video footage from JM where you took JM out round Silverstone in the Clio and decided to go and chase down a Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, I, I think that kind of shows at the same time you don't take it that easy. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. Like, when I say an easy lap, like, you, you're still pushing because at the end of the day you you want to set a benchmark and then I've got a data logger in it as well. So, uh, of course, we compare the data between the, the driver that I'm coaching that day and I'll co I coach anyone, basically, from uh, people that... Uh, haven't even got their race license up to uh, some of my my teammates that I've ended up racing with uh, whether it's teaching them the circuit or um, going through teaching them the weight transfer obviously when you brake the front of the car dives forwards when you accelerate it comes back and depending on when and how you do this you can manipulate the car to make it go faster uh, around a corner and also making sure that you're looking in the right place and yeah, I remember that day with uh, JM. <laughs> You're not meant to do this, but of course, JM, being JM, does what he wants and uh, <laughs> and decided to, to get his phone out and video a few corners whilst yeah. <laughs> whilst we were going around Silverstone. Right. And even from the video, like it's impossible to hold your phone still whilst accelerating <laughs> and braking, especially if you're looking at the phone and you're not concentrating. Um, in 2000 and... I'm, I'm sure it's 2011... I took my cousin uh, Ricky for a lap around the Nordschleife. Um, <laughs> I, I was lucky enough to be racing over there, and I told him, "Look, come over for a weekend." Um, so we came over during one of the weekends, and uh, we strapped him in the passenger seat. And, and Ricky's raced himself, but uh, basically, I reckon we got onto the Nordschleife, and he filmed maybe a kilometre or two. But because he was looking at his phone, uh, I could see like his hands <laughs> moving, and then he stopped. I was like, "You're right." He's like, I'm feeling a bit sick. And so, <laughs> um, and so and it, it made me sick. I don't know. Like, of course, I was grinning to myself. Like, whilst you're concentrating, hey, if you manage to make yourself sick whilst you're driving your own car, you, you've done something pretty spectacular. But uh, yeah. I think as a passenger, it's easier to get a little bit of motion sickness. And, and it's happened in the past. Um, in fact, uh, one of my teammates, uh, uh, when we were allowed, uh, we used to do passenger laps in the GT3 cars in the SLS around the Nordschleife. They're, they're not cheap, but uh, the race cars aren't cheap. I think it costs about a thousand euros a lap. Um, but the, the, it is possible to to do that. And um, 
I remember Abdelaziz was taking uh, a few uh, passengers around and basically this this dude survived the whole lap of the Nordschleife and then as soon as Aziz went into turn one to come back into the pits, uh, the poor guy ended up throwing up in the helmet. And uh, okay, you guys can't see this, but basically Ooh. from what I heard is <laughs> as he vomited, it came over the front of the helmet, but also under the helmet. And as Aziz went around the next corner, it's like, what the hell is that? Something's warm on my lap, and he said he looked down. The guy basically is sick and managed to like projectile over the center console onto <laughs> him as well. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, so so he managed the whole Nordschleife until I don't know whether it's just because he calmed down and he thought he was at the end, but uh, they ended up having to put the helmet in the dishwasher because <laughs> like what do you do with a helmet that someone's been sick on? Like the, the easiest thing they could think of was well, let's stick it in the dishwasher and and clean it's, the thing. It's a good question because probably the the first thing that would come to your head would be burn it. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. But then they're not cheap to replace. I refuse to get in the car. After that, they're like, right, you're doing passenger laps and we need to do a bit of testing. And I was like, I am not getting in that because it smelt bad <laughs> when there was sick in there. Once there was dry sick in there, yeah. it hummed. So I refused to even get in the thing. And I was like, this is just practice. Like They had to take the seats out and hose the inside of the car down before... <laughs> Before it was used again. Thankfully, we were racing in a different car, with a different, like, a different yeah. chassis. But, uh, but yeah, so uh, um, go, going back to the physical sides of, of racing, like it does make me smile that uh, even in a Clio, like with a proper with a driver that knows where he's going and what he's doing, um, it will blow most people's socks away. Like they just don't realise the physical forces. And when we were lucky enough. Um, when I raced with CRS Racing in the Ferrari GT2. Um, I can't remember which circuit it was, but we ended up, uh, um, we had a bit of free time, and uh, so we ended up taking all the mechanics out one by one for literally an outlap one time by and in the pits. And, uh, and I think at that point, they, like, they said, actually, the thing that surprised them the most wasn't the power. Like, the thing was running, I don't know, 550 horsepower, 600 horsepower. Yeah. But they said it was the brakes. And all of them said how violent the brakes are. And yeah. I think that's what people don't realise. Even the F1 cars, like, their braking capabilities far outweigh their, their speed or their acceleration. And uh, Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. I mean, I... With, with the stuff I've done with the F1 side, etc., I've done some stuff out in France with Renault, down at Paul Ricard, where they've mm -hmm. had guests down and they've gone, you know, send guests out in an F4 car, send them out in an old F1 car. Now, the guys come back in from that and their mind is completely blown at the forces involved with it, yeah. even at, you know, a speed that uh, an actual racing driver would be thinking is, is pretty tame and probably not even warming the car up. But they've then gone out with one of the Renault's reserve drivers, either in a two-seater or in yeah, the RS01. Yeah. And you sort of see people come back in after that and you go, so, so how was it? And they're just silent. Because yeah. like you say, they, they can't, can't. They're still trying to process. Yeah. Their brain is still at the end of the pit lane <laughs> trying to catch up what's just happened yeah. during the lap. Is that just trying to trying to get their head around the forces? And that's, that's when you sat in the passenger seat. That's not even having to think about the force of having to apply the pressure to the brake pedal or having to deal with the weight of the steering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you throw all of that in too and you go, right, okay, that's a, that's a very hostile environment. Never mind having to deal with things like the heat, etc. as well, which is, 
another challenge. You, know, you touched on the, the hydration side. You know, the, the data from the F1 guys that I've worked with, even around the likes of Barcelona in March short time, March, April, where it's 20-something degrees, they mm. can still be losing two litres of, of fluid in the race. Yeah, yeah. Somewhere like Singapore, you go, well, that's, that's four litres, about four kilos. If you said to somebody normally, <laughs> uh, just dehydrate yourself to the point at which you've lost four kilos. Bearing in mind, racing drivers generally don't weigh a huge amount as it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a huge amount. Oh, if you could then... Well, body percentage, yeah, you're right. It's like, huge. Yeah. Yeah, yeah you, if you've got a driver, okay, well, let's just put it... A driver that's 80 kilos, which, okay, so in comparison to me, okay, I'm a bit of a short ass. I'm, I'm one meter uh, 74 and I weigh about 68 kilos. So an 80 kilo driver, I've got a bit of a, an advantage over. But like you said, if they end up losing four kilos, that's uh, that's 5% of their yeah. weight, which to lose it in the space of an hour, I think, um, not that I recommend this, but uh, I, uh, <laughs> I think most people would be quite happy to lose four kilos that easily. Yeah, um, oh, 100%. <laughs> but you know, if you, if you lost four kilos in an hour through fluid and dehydration, you'd be feeling Oh, you end, you end up with a banging headache. And, yeah. and actually, it's funny you say that because, okay, I don't know, how much fluid I lost this weekend, but um, a little bit my own fault. Normally, uh, or what's happened is the the drinking system's changed um, from what I we normally run, and so uh, so my drink system wasn't working uh, correctly. So <laughs> um, I ended up doing I ended up doing a double stint this weekend, and of course I, I had a bit of a banging headache for the for the rest of the afternoon um, and I can only put that down to dehydration because of course I came in uh, straight away obviously grabbed myself a bottle of water and I must have drank a litre and a half um, within the next hour and I still had a banging headache until uh, later that evening and in, even after you've done that like you might go to the toilet straight away after getting out of the car but then after that you might not need the bathroom for like three or four hours which really shows you how much yeah. you have dehydrated and like, okay, there's, there's a difference between GT cars and single-seaters. Obviously, the F1 boys are going to some incredibly hot places and they're cocooned in the, in, in the cockpit so they don't get much airflow. Um, they, they also don't get much drink. And what they do have is like hot tea by the end of the warm-up lap. Well, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Um, and, but in the GT car, of course, we're enclosed inside this car and depending on... Obviously, in the Mercedes, the engine's in the front, so you're going to get a bit of heat soak through through the chassis and through the car. Um, uh, even when we used to race in like the Ferrari and the McLaren, uh, the heat soak works the other way, where you feel the heat coming through the back of the car. Um, and uh, I suppose I, I'm lucky that uh, the Mercedes is actually quite civilized. We we've got a vent in the front grille that goes all the way down the underside of the bonnet. So the faster we go, the more air we got. So it's quite a good incentive to go as fast as you can. <laughs> it's one way of doing it. We've also got a fan as well, but it's one of those things. I like, end. You can order it with air conditioning, but of course, uh, yeah. There's always that little thing in the driver's mind that if you've got oh, that turned on, then you're possibly say, losing a few horses at that point, which that, no one that's wants the to point lose. At which drivers, being as competitive as they are, are going to look oh, for we're any stubborn. advantage. Yeah. We're stubborn. So, um, you, like you say, you could have aircon. But if you think it's going to drain power, the chances of a driver actually putting that on, unless they've got a significant lead, 
it's not even that it's uh, I suppose some like in some championships you have to run it so like for yeah. when we did the ELMS 2011 um, basically the inside of the car had to be no hotter than 35 degrees or I think it was two degrees above ambient whatever the ambient temp was so well 35 degrees is already hot anyway and plus you're wearing you've got to remember like we're not in there in our shorts either we're in there in our fireproof trousers fireproof socks fireproof top which is basically like a thick pair of pajamas and then we've got a fireproof onesie on as well yeah and so um and then then you've got a helmet on with your balaclava so effectively you're in there and by the time you've got all of that on uh, and it's warm it's almost the equivalent of breathing through a straw yeah, as well you, you wouldn't want to go and put all of that on and just stand outside on a mildly warm day let alone a hot day oh yeah they, yeah in fact the equivalent would be like putting a uh your skiing gear on and like you said going and <laughs> sit for in the yeah, go, go for a stroll in the summer <laughs> um yeah uh, it, that's the thing like the, the heat in itself can play such a big role i mean i remember you know you know he went very well I remember when he was out testing the, the LMP1 car, was it probably a year before last at Monza? And it was a really hot day. And I sent him a message and said, you know, that's, that's probably what, about 50, 60 degrees inside the car? And he actually turned around and said, well, I've, I've literally just measured it. I've put a mm. temperature gauge in there, it's 60 degrees in the car. Yeah. Most like, people would be getting out of a sauna at that point, yeah. not stepping into it in a race suit section go right I'll just go and drive this now for, for two hours and actually I've got to be able to perform consistently for that time as well I suppose there's that great thing called adrenaline <coughs> which uh, masks some of it but I suppose it doesn't matter generally how fit you are I think once because I've had it a few times when I raced in America I ended up in the medical centre twice because uh, just from dehydration yeah. I remember getting out of the car um, and I remember I felt like I was suffering and I remember taking my shoes off and they had the cool box there with all the drinks yep. and I literally just put my feet straight in <laughs> and just trying to cool down and as I said twice I ended up in the medical centre just from dehydration from yeah. from from that I think the Mazda was an ex exceptionally uh, hot car basically we had the three rotors like the uh, the Mazda prototype the uh, was it the 787 yep. D the thing that screamed it triple sounds, rotor sounds brilliant yeah like it spat flames out like a meter long and uh, basically when we ended up with the newer chassis the exhaust went through where the passenger would sit uh, okay it had its own <laughs> boxing and insulation around it but but the thing is when there's no airflow yeah like you are just in there cooking and uh, well, I mean I've, I've seeing guys who've raced some of the historic stuff before and all right some of it's changed now with the materials that are used but, but like you say when you get the heat soak in the gt car they've had it where it's come through to the point at which it's melted the sole of their racing boots yeah, the yeah. and that, uh, there's one occasion where one's gone to get out of the pit stop and his boots been left behind in the car because it's stuck itself it's where the really melted. <laughs> yeah i i've heard about the melted uh boot before but uh, I suppose <laughs> your shoe coming off because it's stuck to the pedal is <laughs> is a, quite an extreme which okay thankfully I haven't had to suffer that because that sounds more painful than fun um, it's also not great when you're trying to do a quick driver oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> give me my boot back mate so, um, so, so yeah so uh, 
I, yeah, as lucky as we are that we get to do at times, uh, I am not complaining at all, but uh, we, we do put ourselves through some extreme circumstances every now and again, but of course, we wouldn't keep on doing it again if we didn't love it. It's, uh, no, I think it's a slightly, it's a slightly sadistic side though of, of racing drivers, isn't it? You talk to any racing driver and you go, they like the danger element, it's, it gives you the adrenaline, it's, it's kind of part of the draw of it. Obviously, nobody wants to get hurt, everybody's all for the safety, etc. But at the same time, if it was a completely safe sport, there wouldn't be quite the same adrenaline buzz as there can be some of the rest of the time. Yeah. So uh, it's, you know, it's a bit like people who go skydiving. Yeah. You go and jump out of a plane and you go... And those guys <laughs> are just nuts. Right. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's three, three fall and plummet to earth and, and see how close we can get before we're... <laughs> we yeah. call the shoot but it, it's that adrenaline buzz that yeah. comes with almost that, that bit of danger and it's, all, it's almost the same thing in terms of the hostile environment of it. it it makes it a bit more of a challenge and when it becomes a challenge it's you kind of want to push yourself in it but it, it kind of leads on to the other element of it is that the physical side of racing is one thing you know there's it's physically demanding there's, there's no doubt about that but the mental side and the concentration needed to be able to perform for a long period of time is huge for drivers. You know, and for you, like you say, when you're, when you're at the Norschleife, you've got probably the most demanding track in the world, the longest track, you've got to remember every inch of it, you've got the challenge of pushing the car to the absolute limit to get the most out of it, and then you throw in multiple classes with all different speeds, all different abilities of driver, and you've got to try and navigate that for up to three hours at a time. Yeah, yeah. And not make a mistake. Easier said than done. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, obviously, yeah, like the Nurburgring, known as, as the Green Hell, like, to me, it's the best place in the world. And if there was only one track I could race that race at for the rest of my life, it would be there because you just never get bored of the place. Even when you do uh, a three-hour stint around there, you're going to be doing roughly... Uh, eight laps an hour so of course you, you do uh, 24 laps over the, the three hours just to put that into perspective the uh, spa I believe is the longest track on the F1 grid at yep. seven kilometers yep. during uh, a single stint around spa 24 for example um, which is about an hour and five minutes we'll do maybe 28 laps so we'll do four more laps around Spa uh, in an hour versus the Nürburgring in three. And so um, so it's a different form of concentration between doing the Spa 24 and the Nürburgring 24. As grueling as the Nürburgring is, actually, physically, it's less demanding on the body because a lot of it is very free-flowing. Yeah. Um, and it's a little kink through this corner back on the power uh, and uh, I think uh, realistically there's the 73 real corners um, on on the North Life not including the Grand Prix uh, and a lot of them are very just free-flowing actually Spa for me is a, a harder 24 hours physically yeah uh, than Spa is a very physical track like. yeah I think Spa's the most physical track. I, off the top of my head, I can't think of another track that's probably more physical because if you, like, let's just do a quick walk around the lap. You've got the source, which is turn one hairpin. Yep. So you reach it 
fourth gear down into first so of course big braking zone there you get the thing stopped turned flat out down uh, the hill towards Eau Rouge you go through a Rouge in a GT3 car we can just about do it flat out so of course you rattle through there through the the left and, and right left for anybody that hasn't been to Spa but who might have seen it on TV Eau Rouge on the TV it looks like a hill when you actually get to Spa it's a mountain <laughs> the thing's a mountain like I'm assuming because you're a bit of a nutter, you you've probably ran around there a few times or cycled a few. Laps, I've I've done a few track walk trans, yeah, but I've yeah. not I've not cycled around it yet. But even even walking up over Rouge is bad enough. Yeah, well, yeah, I I've been daft enough to run around there a few times when, of course, I was like, yeah, I'm on a fitness streak. Let's carry on uh, running and <laughs> and of course, you get through a Rouge, um, like running, and you just about get to the top of it. And then you don't realise how much the rest of Kemmel Strait continues to go uphill yep. yeah. for, I don't know, another six, seven, eight hundred metres. And and then actually also once you get to the medical centre, the other side of the track, all the way back to the star line is all yep. uphill as well. Yep. And you just don't realise that when you see it on the TV. But or even when you're in the race car, you just, obviously, it's quite easy pressing that pedal all the way to the floor versus uh, having to run up the hill. <laughs> and so but uh, but yeah go, going back through the walkthrough of Spa like you go down Camel Strait and then you got the next complex which is a 90 degree right left right so of course you get chucked around even though you're braced in the seat from uh, right to left to right through there and then you got Brussels Hairpin and No Name then um, uh, then to Puon, Puon as yeah. well and that is like for us that's a fourth gear corner in the GT3 car we're, we're doing I don't know 100 and 60, 70, 80 kilometers around there. And then again, you've got the next few complexes. So you don't actually realize how much you're getting thrown around and they're just heavy loaded corners. Yep. Whereas compared to the Nürburgring, apart from the hats and back area where obviously it chucks you around a bit, once you go over floodflats and that, actually that section of the track um, is very small steering inputs all the way through there. And it's just about being as flowing as possible. and reducing the amount of drag uh, in in the car so generally like I do the Nürburgring 24 hours and I feel good after it like the next day I could go train again honestly apart from being a bit tired um, whereas the Spa 24 is oh Spa is a completely different kettle of Spa bitch. 24 I, I'm aching for two days after and like even uh, j just the left side of my, my body and the, my leg because uh, I I left foot brake so I drive it like a bit of a go-kart so right foot on the throttle left foot on the brake we do have the clutch but once we're out of the pit lane we don't need it um, but yeah I mean, you look at Spa realistically the, when you're driving Spa the only the only time you've got to rest is the camel straight yeah because he, like I say, even that drag back from the medical centre past the karting track back towards the bus stop it's not straight Oh no, 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 like it's, it's flat out and we can do um, Bronchamon flat, just. But that's the thing, it, it's just, so you've still got a lot so of concentration. So we're still on maximum threshold of what the car's able to yeah. give us uh, to go through that corner. Like, uh, obviously in, in anything single-seater around there, it should be easy flat, but even when it's easy flat in a single-seater, you're still pulling G-forces through there and so... Yeah. Um, Honestly, I remember everyone going to me, oh, you're going to love it when you go to Spa eventually. It's the best circuit in the world. And the first time I went there was in a Formula Renault. So this was 2009. I think I'd just come back from 
doing a few races in America, jumped in a Formula Renault. Um, and I did the first session, came in and everyone was like buzzing. So what did you think of Spa? What did you think of Spa? <laughs> and I honestly, I was disappointed. I was like, it got so much hype to it. But Eau Rouge just isn't a corner in a Formula Renault. And then even like um, Puan and that, like, I don't think we even go down again. I think you just have a little dab on the brake and you're back to full power. And uh, same with Blanchemont, it's just not... Even the medical centre corner, that is just flat for this form, uh, for single-seaters. Um, and I did go back for maybe three years, two years. And then the first time I went in the Ferrari GT2 around there, the 430 sequential gearbox, no ABS, big sticky Michelin tyres on. I did three laps and I came in. I was like, oh my God, <laughs> this place is amazing. Like, it was like a different circuit. I just couldn't process how tame it felt in a formula car versus in a gt3 and i even in a road car like if you ever get the opportunity even in a road car take the opportunity to go and do a lap around there whatever you do do not try and take uh, a rouge flat because doesn't matter what your mates tell you how oh, i did it flat they're full of shit they didn't yeah. because in a road car you actually get there probably quicker than we do in a gt3 car because they don't have the drag of the rear wing and actually modern day road cars have probably got more power than than we have in uh, in a GT3 because we're restricted to like 525 550 horsepower but even then you know Eau Rouge in a GT3 car you can do flat just and, until you've got somebody in front of you yes and I've, yeah, yeah. I've, you know I've seen some huge huge shunts through Eau Rouge where someone's just lost that aero because they've got the car e- in front. even when they don't have a car in front of them it is as sketchy as anything and so um yeah, unfortunately, uh, yeah, I've seen people go off through. Oh, if you hit the curb on the right-hand side as you go through it, and it upsets the car, then, then generally you're a passenger at that point. And um, yeah, and you've seen it even even in F1, uh, yeah. those boys, it gets a little hairy when they're when they're following each other through there close enough uh, because you just lose that little bit of aero. The thing pushes, oh, and then you add more steering, and then of course you're twenty twenty seventeen, I think it was with Magnussen shunt through there in the Renault. Well, he's lost it coming over the top through the left with the left hander. Mm. The impact is hard enough to have then thrown the basically safety set out from around the neck. And Did the it? I, I didn't even. Yeah, so it, it, it was enough to throw the, the kind of the head yeah, yeah, yeah. out of the cockpit. So it got to its threshold where it broke whatever holds it in. Where, right? I didn't even uh, have to go and have a little Google and have a look through yeah. that if I can. I mean, that's, that's the other element, though, isn't it? You know, from a, from a driver's perspective, the fitness side for, for driving the car is one thing. There's the huge concentration, but actually, it's being physically able to cope with the impact forces that you might then have yeah. in an accident as well, which can be a huge. Well, that's it. Sadly, uh, it is a dangerous sport. As much as we love it every now and again, unfortunately, we do have uh, incidents where people get injured or possibly or sadly um, there's even a few fatalities and and it is a wake-up call every night now and again it sort of uh, kicks us in the face and reminds us of it can be a very dangerous sport and uh, I think like I don't do it because it's a dangerous sport I think I do it more for the love of the competition I, I, I if I wasn't racing I'd probably be involved in some other sport where I feel that I'd be competitive and 
it doesn't matter what I do. Um, whether it, I, me and my cousin used to race uh, against each other all the way through our karting and through the start of the single seater stuff, and even if it was walking to the shop, and then of course it'd be <laughs> like, right, who's going to get there first? And then of course it'd be the race would be on, and uh, uh, and um, so I think it's more the competition that we all uh, live for rather than the. Uh, I, I know, the, I know exactly what you mean. That if you're competitive, you're competitive. Well, right? I, I've got a feeling you're about to beast me uh, on some of the gym equipment yeah, in, we'll, we'll in, a, in a short while, but of course, the, I'm sure the competitiveness is going to come out, and I've already seen some of the, the figures and statistics around the room from other drivers, and of course, I can't be beaten by, by those guys, so... Um, but yeah, there, there, there I, is a competitive... I apologise in advance if I end up throwing up, <laughs> trying to beat... Uh, <laughs> It's right as long as as long as you don't do it in any helmet and, or over random places where I've then got to you know hose the gym yeah, down, yeah, yeah. we'll be fine. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I'd, like I say, the competitive side, I've, I've been the same even out on a road bike. It's I've got oh, to, that's I've, the other thing. I've, I've got to get the top speed. I've got to hit this speed, or somebody comes past. It's like I, I can't have that. I cannot be past. Oh man, else. like okay, I don't do much cycling, but when I do, it's a bit degrading at times because of course I'm like there in my head pedaling my ass off and uh, and I've had it where some old boys just like come cruising past and like we've just happened to stop at the traffic <laughs> lights and we got chatting and he's like oh yeah I'm 72 and I'm like shit I'm dying like <laughs> I've had exactly that there was a I was out on the road with Nick Padmore and there's a, a climb not far from here called Cold Harbour and it's a it's a pretty horrible climb yeah yeah and me and Nick are both there we're both on carbon fiber aero bikes going you know, got some good bikes they're really light yeah, yeah. and some old boys just come up this climb on a 50 quid grinding away and just cruised straight past us yeah and you just sort of sit there going i gotta buy a new bike <laughs> it's obviously the bike it's definitely not me so <laughs> I've, I've, I've had it as well going down down the other side of that hill it's actually. never the driver or the rider's fault no, no, no. it's always the equipment <laughs> no, 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 I've had to go down the other side where I'm trying to get 50 mile an hour on the downhill and I, I was about 46 and this guy is just absolutely flown past me and they're going I, I can't I need to find a way to make the bike quicker I yeah, can't yeah, have yeah. this <laughs> so yeah it's uh, like you say drives you, you gotta do a, you need to shave the head that's what it is there's too much drag under that helmet uh, to you, need honest, to, you need to be aerodynamic like I, that. I think that must be what it was I think it must have been the fact he shaved and the fact <laughs> I've probably shaved his legs as well so it, it's all it's all in that little bit of wind yeah, resistance yeah. It was, that was what it was that's my excuse too <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely nothing to do with the the lack of bike fitness yeah yeah uh, I'm, I'm probably going to get some some stick off some of the guys I know like Ollie Wake afterwards but for this who is a, a pretty prolific cycler so anyway it's brilliant brilliant to chat to you and i'm sure there's some very very useful information or interesting information in there for people uh, i think it's probably a good point to leave it there and kind of give you a bit of a beating in the gym here we go thank you very <laughs> much you're welcome